Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another edition of Moving to Live. Moving to Live, along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, believe movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. With Moving to Live, we try to interview professionals literally across the world, although today we're interviewing a professional from Denver, Colorado. We are in the middle of COVID-19, and, and high school and college sports are either canceled, postponed, or up in the air. So you read a lot in the literature and in the newspaper about what's going to happen to the student-athletes, the stresses that are placed on the student-athletes. And as I was reading this, I was thinking there is not a whole lot has been mentioned about coaches, some of them who may be new to the profession, some who may be in the profession many years. So I reached out to Dr. Brian Garrity, who is the program director of the sport coaching program at Denver University to get his insights on it. First of all, about the education of coaches and why it's so important. And second of all, to give some insight about what we can see with coaches with COVID-19, possible suggestions to help with what's going on in a crazy time. So Brian, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while. So it's, it's been. Nice to be Brian, Brian was one of our first interviews for Moving mm -hmm. to Live. We found out about his long, strange trip from Ohio to the Deep South, all the way out to the Rocky Mountains. And now, now look at you. I mean, now you just signed that big deal with Spotify. And, uh, you know, it's yes. just glad, glad you've taken me along for a ride. I know you and I have talked a little bit before at conferences, and I think many people who are in the movement profession across the board kind of think that coaching is something you kind of do when your athletic career is over. Or on the other hand, some people, they say, well, if you can't teach, you, or if you can't do it, you teach or you coach. And if you can't do that, you consult. But there is a whole uh, body of research that's growing on the importance of the education of coaching and the socialization of coaching, which you're one of the people at the forefront. Kind of briefly describe what is the program at, uh, at Denver with sport coaching and who is it intended for? Uh, well, first, first I, Oscar Wilde was a terrible teacher. You know that, right? Uh, so I was just 
I'll just check that off my list here. Oscar Wilde is rolling over in his grave because he couldn't teach anybody. Um, so our, our MA program at DU, um, you know, and this is kind of my, because I, I founded the program, I created the curriculum, and, and there's guidelines, and I took advice from, right, it, you know, people and, and great minds that came before me and curriculums and structures and national standards. But ultimately, somebody has to decide to design the curriculum. And when they hired me, I was the only person here uh, to, to start the program. And so it's a combination of sciences and, and arts and humanities. And that's throughout the courses. It's throughout the actual assignments and the activities that we do. So we've got, you know, biomechanics. Everything's about athletic performance and, and a bit about health and well-being, too. And you've got to think about that because depending on the, what we're using sports for, Sports are not necessarily or inherently healthy. Uh, oftentimes they are, they can be, but right, like nowadays, if you're playing sports in COVID and you get sick or you have long-term damage or uh, some sports you know, result in long-term arthritis, you know, uh, various tendonitis or pains, uh, psychological, emotional abuse, right? So, we, I, you know, I always have to say these things and, and I'm not a I'm not cynical or pessimistic. That doesn't have anything to do with about it. It's being realistic and, and more wide awake and, and truthful in, in what you see in the sport. Uh, so we've got biomechanics, physiology, psychology, sociology. Uh, there's a great, I don't know if you've heard of it, Ben, then too. There's a great model uh, back in the 70s, and I, and I, I believe it's Engel. I always get tripped up if it's Engel or Berg. I always get, uh, forget. But it's called the biopsychosocial model. And it's a way that we would normally talk about just interdisciplinary uh, approaches to research as well as practice. So biology, psychology, sociology. I also add in arts and humanities. And I think that, uh, right, you, you can't get too far away from your values and uh, using traditionally artistic humanities philosophy. I had, I had a friend of mine today actually email me this morning asking about existential psychology. Uh, and, and so all of these things are underpinned by various value systems and uh, philosophy. So anyway, that's that's throughout our program. So it's very applied, but it's also highly theoretical, scientific, research-oriented, rigorous, and it all goes together. It's theory and practice, and it all goes together, trying to have a holistic, whatever, again, whatever we mean by that, a holistically prepared, you know, coach or practitioner. And I know some people may be listening to this and they say, well, you know, I, I'm a coach or I want to be a coach or that's my career goal, but I want to coach and fill in whatever your sport is literally from football to distance running. And they say, I need to know more about whatever the sport is. You know, if I'm football and I know the common model in football for football coaches to become football coaches is they become GAs, although the GA is questionable as far as the classes they take, but they kind mm -hmm. of survey mentorship of sorts and whatever the good points or the bad points of the coach or coaches that they are under uh, eventually become part of the coaching tree. And it's a little bit atypical, it would seem in the longitudinal career or the, or how coaches develop to have say a program that says, look, we offer a master's degree, or maybe other schools say we offer a bachelor's degree in coaching. Why is it necessary for maybe somebody who is a, is a high school athlete, they're a college athlete, and they're cognitive enough, and they awa they're aware that, hey, you know, I'm not good enough to go to the next level, but I love whatever this sport I'm participating in. 
why should they get a master's or what's the rather what's the benefit of getting a master's in something like sport coaching rather than saying you know i want to get a master's in uh exercise physiology or i'm coaching track and field in the field events i want to get a master's in biomechanics so i can really hone in on the technique as opposed to maybe mm -hmm. a more holistic or whole or a whole body picture which is what they would get with a coaching degree yeah well i think it towards the end there you kind of touched on it that that's the exact point is that when you're coaching, it's not just a thing. You're not just a technician, you know, a biomechanist or a physiologist or even a psychologist. You know, coaching itself is interdisciplinary. You're more of a generalist. It doesn't mean you can't develop and you should develop deep knowledge in all those areas and maybe prioritize different things based on your career path and the, and the experiences that you've had before and your understanding of all those different areas and, and working with athletes. But uh, you know, even having the self-awareness and the introspection to be critical of yourself, to be humble about it, to try to continue to grow and get better. You know, that's a fundamental uh, knowledge and skill that we want to instill, right? An attitude that we all talk about in higher education that we want to promote lifelong learners. Okay, but we're going to stick you in nothing but highly specialized scientific classes. And we'll say in passing lifelong learning, but we're not actually going to teach you how to do that or what more about it. We're just going to say, you know, make sure you spend time in the lab or take collecting your data or something like that. You know, like, of course, you're not teaching then critical thinking or lifelong development. You have to do both. So I, I will. You don't know. I just I'll give a plug for we just got an article accepted in Strength Conditioning Journal uh, about the absence of psychosocial competencies in strength conditioning. And as the NSCA and, and other groups, too, are looking to prepare practitioners uh what is the requirements what are the requirements the criteria uh, what are the standards and who designs those things and when you look at now the push towards accreditation it often misses those holistic things it misses values humanities ethics philosophy leadership uh, organizing group skills uh, so when you're coaching right you're in front of people you're in front of individuals, small groups, potentially family, recruiting, um, you're making announcements, you're solving, I mean, all sorts of problems that are way beyond physiology and biomechanics and nutrition. Uh, I mean, nutrition too, right, is a, is a really interesting thing to study because I always tease, right? I tease uh, because a physiologist because I don't like you people. No, I, I like you fine. <laughs> I you know, Ben and I were joking before the podcast. Too. In the summer times, I watched a lot of Don Rickles. And so my Don Rickles humor uh, gets gets amped up. But no, I tease, right? Like to lose weight, move a little more, eat a little bit less in general. Like the, the physiology is kind of simple once you kind of put it like that, right? And, and we have friends that put out on social media, all the diets are the same. You know, they're all the same. Reduce your caloric intake a little bit and you got to move a little bit more. Outside of any sort of, you know, chronic disease or hormonal problem, that, that's basically the formula. You know, and I, I worked with a guy down in Mississippi who was a big, uh, he owned the biggest health club in town, about 5,000 people or so at his gym. And he never graduated college. And him and I used to joke, we got to be buddies and we did some work together and he hired one of our students to run a, uh, an obesity prevention kind of program. And, and you know, I, we talked about, so there are some safety issues there that you need to know about and um, referrals and, and be ready for some things. And he said, well, Brian, you know, nobody can see it on the podcast, but he, he, he held out his arm, like his arms, like he's going to do a bicep curl. And he's like, you know, I, I, I'm not as smart as you are, 
you know, but you know, the, the bicep does this and he flexes on, you know, it only goes in one way. It goes out and it goes down. It flexes and extends, it flexes and extends. You know, I don't, I don't know how, how fancy you guys need to get about things, but that's what it does. And I used to laugh. Like I said, George, you're exactly right. Like, I, you know, I, I love you because you take something sometimes that we can make too complex and, and simplify. Um, I think so that's, it, that's a great point. I remember at a conference, somebody gave a, very nice, very complicated, very interesting talk on periodized training for cycling. And there happened to be a uh, cycling coach that I knew who coached a number of Olympic medalists and a number of Tour de France riders. And afterwards, I asked him, you know, what'd you think of that talk? He goes, well, it was interesting. He goes, you know, if I want to improve the cycling performance of my athletes, the first time thing I do is work up to doubling the mileage they're riding. He said, then I start worrying about other things. So I think that hits on it too. It's like we do have a tendency to overcomplicate things. I mean, I, the, the big thing in uh, with, with people who are not necessarily participating in competitive athletes is they want to have a coach at their fitness facility or they want to have a, a program just like the pros use. Yeah, yeah. So I guess a follow-up question to that would be, you know, we have a tendency, I think, as, as you said, in physiology to overcomplicate things. Are we overcomplicating things by saying, you know, we need to have a specialized training for coaches too? Or is it mm-hmm. just something mm-hmm. that maybe that, that we're doing just to promote more jobs for people? I, no, I was, so in this regard, no, I, I, I quite strongly believe we actually need to have standards, qualifications, and I, I quite frankly, I think licensure and regulation of coaches. I think that right now what we have is we have coaches that are hugely influential and powerful that are in some cases woefully unprepared and it's no fault of their own. We have a system right now in the U S at least where you can basically go coach or work your way up the ladder, you know, in, in different directions as a coach with very f- few formal regulations and quality control processes. And so I'm not saying every coach has to have a master's degree. Uh, and we obviously cater to a you know, relatively small group of students um, that are looking to advance their education and get the best education and, you know, knowledge and, and thought leaders and, and books and assignments and really hone their craft. But, and, and everybody doesn't need to be at that level, right? We, and we certainly have a lot of coaching going on with youth that we don't want to make it so hard that we lose out on, uh, you know, the, the human capital or the labor force to do this work. Now, that being said, again, I, I'm appalled that we have so much uh, physical, psychological, emotional, sexual abuse in sport. And that we see constantly people being yelled at and, you know, physically hurt. And now we're talking about, you know, exercise or, or sport in COVID times. And who's really going to win and lose and why are we doing some of these things? You know, and, and how can we be trying to reach the goals that we have for sport or the aim of it, you know, while being safe, you know, uh, so how do we be effective and safe doing those things? And at the elite level or the performance level, sport is often not healthy. So we can kind of, you know, cut the, cut the you know, narrative, the garbage on that narrative and just call it like we see it, you know, and what we want for a, the five-year-old and the 15 and the 25-year-old can vary dramatically. Now, they all might be playing football or they all might be running, or but the meaning and the practicing of what they're actually doing can vary considerably. And I think that's one of the very odd, unique things about sport. 
is that you're technically kind of doing the same thing, but the practice and the training and the meaning and the treatment can vary wildly. And it's too much like the wild west out there right now. And so, yes, I think fundamental, and I'll close, I think fundamentals are massively important. And I think it's kind of like when you take a, you know, let's say a intro to finance class or an intro to home ec in our cooking class with a little bit of knowledge, right? And you can develop it, you can kind of appreciate it and you can go explore further, but at least you kind of have a, a baseline to work off of versus, you know, uh, you know, advanced periodization model. I always laugh at my periodization models too. We can joke about that. Nobody, nobody's periodization model planned for a pandemic. So all of your periodization models literally have gone out the window and it's nonsense. Not only because it's a pandemic, but at another level, it's a macro theory that you're trying to explain complex things that are constantly changing, you know, with these rather broad categories in one, two, four-year formats. Periodization ain't, ain't the, you know, cure-all. It's not a panacea. So you know, while, while we don't uh, have to go down that advanced road, we can also try to, you know, at least, hey, at least my, my man George knows that the bicep, you know, flexes the arm and the tricep extends the arm. You know, not, not everybody, you know, that's doing a you know, personal training or sport has to, you know, know how many uh, molecules of ATP are released in this particular way in this particular time. Like in that regard, yeah, I do think we get into overkill. Um, I can I bring up, I want to see, let's see I, let me ask you, did you, I don't know if you saw, I saw this on Twitter. Uh, Francis Carnes, the NIH director, was talking about precision nutrition and the next frontier in NIH funding. I did not see that, no. It's interesting because NIH, guys, stands for National Institute of Health, and Francis Carnes is the director of it. He's been director for years, as far as I know. Um, but you look at, like, you know, what he's talking about, um, you know, advanced nutrition concepts, human genetics, timing of things, and nutrient timing, uh, I assume. And I, I look at that stuff and go, Geez, man, you know, it'd be nice if we would have more parks to play with, uh, to play in, if we had more quality coaches, if we had sidewalks, you know, do we really need to fund? And I've reviewed grants, you know, you know, for the, for the NSCA, and I remember one of them was going to, had, had reviewed the literature and said, most of the research on interval training looks at, you know, six uh, sets at 25 second rest, and I'm going to look at 30 second rest. And I just kind of throw my hands up and I go, I, I can't get excited over that. Like, I can't get excited. Like, I get that it can be important in explaining some of those minute mechanisms of, uh, you know, human physiology, endocrinology and that. But when people don't have just quality coaches or safe environments or they live in a food desert, like, those are priorities. You know, we need to be helping those people out. Like, right now, too, right in COVID times, you know, the sales of bike or bikes and outdoor camping supplies and all that is skyrocketing. Because people are craving to move. They can, you know, a lot of the gyms are closed. So how can I get outside? How can I do something and, and move and be free? Uh, you know, where are the, where's the infrastructure for that sort of thing? And we talk about the America's infrastructure problem. I would include not just parks and roads and bridges, but, but uh, outdoor spaces. As I said, parks, outdoor spaces and recreation areas. Um, you know, I love to see us uh, find ways to make uh, like at-home physical activity right now too. Peloton, Peloton, right? The the bicycle sales too for yes. those guys are through the roof. You know, so what can we do to help people kind of move and be healthy and enjoy themselves in this crazy stressful time? 
We're talking with Dr. Brian Garrity. He is the director of sport coaching at Den Denver University. Brian, you raised up a couple of points in the in this that I want to go back and touch on. I, first of all, I think your point that not everybody needs to get a master's in coaching or master's in something else is good. But you have to think that many of the people who are getting master's degrees are going to be practitioners. They're not going to be in the lab. So hopefully organically, it's going to come down just for example, in your specialty with the coaching, that if it's explained and educated that, look, you don't use exercise as punishment when somebody doesn't do anything, or if you're working with distance athletes or female athletes who are, or male athletes who are prone to eating disorders, you don't do public weigh-ins and things like that. You have to think that if they're being educated about the why, that this is going to pass down to the coaches, like, look, this is just the way we do it, and here's why we do it. So a lower level of coach or a coach who doesn't get the degree is still going to get the knowledge at some level because the higher level, the master's level coach learned not only the what, but the why, and now they can teach the what. Yeah. Some sort of like diffusion, like this intellectual capital diffusion uh, throughout society now from these, the well-educated coaches. You know, it's, it's hard. I'll say this, you know, uh, a lot of our students, especially the younger ones, or the ones that are making career transitions into more professional full-time roles in coaching, you know, there's a lot of social pressure. There's a lot of fitting in that goes in, uh, in sport. And the idea that, that, and I, and I, I can tell you, I've had students tell me too, like, I, I, I hear what you guys are saying in the classroom and I'm reading these things in the books and I see the research and you guys explain it very well and I understand it, but the people I'm working with or the league that I'm participating in is doing all of these other things. You know, what do I do now? You know, and basically what they're asking is, are you sure about this stuff? And they're asking, I think these guys are crazy. What do I do? And how do I navigate this stuff? And so we actually talk about, you know, uh, the micro politics or organizational politics of these kind of things and relationships. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of good organizations that have professional development and that are, you know, we have a lot, as at a conference years ago, too, one of the big names in the field, uh, Dan Gould, was actually talking about translational research. And Dan's a, uh, I don't say old, but he's an ex experienced uh, sports psychologist at Michigan State. And, uh, uh, you know, the, there's some irony there about being in Michigan State. But um, he's talking about translational research. You know, we have all this knowledge, and it doesn't trickle down, too. You know, how many, <laughs> I mean, pick a topic, right? Then pick a topic. Like we can talk about how people disregard science nowadays and any type of science, especially social science, um, you know, because that's more easily refutable uh, apparently than physical science. You know, at least nobody I think is arguing too much against gravity or, or the need for oxygen. But Oh, I'm sure there's somebody on Twitter doing that. <laughs> You're going to get in. I hope for you flat earth people, make sure you uh, email Ben afterwards and, and tell him that the earth is flat and, you know, <laughs> send him a nasty email. But yeah, I mean, again, but the, like, the, why? Why is it the wild west? Like, what other profession? So the quick history of it, like, what other profession nowadays? And it's not a profession. That's the first thing. It's not a profession. When you look at how people have tended to define a profession, coaching is not a profession. It does not meet the most of the standards that we associate with being a profession. But you look at right attorneys, medicine, nurses, nurse techs, 
barbers, you know, uh, I mean, uh, child care workers, social workers, psychologists, I mean, you name it, real estate agents. Coaching is one of the few and I think probably the most significant or powerful, aside from politicians, because they have no training either, uh, which, you know, right? keep your politics out of my sports or your sports on my politics, uh, which obviously is a joke right now, too, because that's what everybody's talking about is the, the politics of sport and trying to continue to play. So anyway, the point, again, was coaching is, is so unregulated that I think it needs to change. But phys ed over the last 120 years now in the U.S., phys, physical education has gone down the crapper that we have dismissed it as something less rigorous than math and reading and science. The schools have taken phys ed out of the classroom or out of the requirements. Uh, it's often taught by somebody who's ill-prepared or you know, is really a, has more of an identity as a coach than a physical educator. Um, we emphasize sports, competitive sports, more than physical education. The two are not synonymous. And uh, so, and then we've ex expanded the education for athletic training, physical therapy, and physicians and medicine and nursing and allied health fields, all of that community health workers. But kind of skating through the middle of all this has been coaching. So you've got, you know, phys ed has kind of gone down, sciences and health sciences has gone up, but sport coaching and everything kind of tightly affiliated with it has just kind of snuck in there. And so I, you look at, especially the professional coaches, the collegiate coaches, why don't they have to have degrees and licensure and professional development and accountability? How is it that somebody can be constantly doing like really serious unethical things and be found you know, so-called guilty or culpable by the NCAA or, or maybe by the corrupt uh, USA, we'll take, we'll pick on USA Gymnastics. Uh, and I just finished watching Athlete A, I believe it is, the Athlete A movie, uh, which is a great movie to watch about how Steve Penny at the USA Gymnastics covered up their abuse for years, right? Like none of that should be happening. And I, I think in, in, in we live in an age where people want to bemoan the government and say government bad, government bad. I don't. I, I want good government. I want good regulation. I want people like you and me and others that really care about it, and they're going to be thoughtful about it to help establish licensing boards and regulation for coaching and, and the administrators. Because like Steve Penny wasn't even a coach; he was a, a you know a CEO or president of USA Gymnastics. And they know about things and they don't do anything about it. It's the same as various owners or athletic directors that are found culpable of that. And, and you know, that's where I, I know one of the things my dad once told me when I was relatively young and naive, he said, you know, Ben, one of the things you always need to keep in the back of your mind when you're talking about big organizations, and I think this is across the board from companies to national governing bodies to sports leagues to institutions of higher education is the majority of times they exist to perpetuate themselves. Yeah. And if you remember that, yep. it doesn't mean you can't do good or you can't behave ethically, but remember you may be swimming against against the current and that doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing to do. Well, I think that's a great observation. Was your dad a sociologist, by the way? Uh, he was a political scientist and then a Presbyterian uh, minister. So, yeah, but he, he gets he gets organizations, he gets politics, he understands how societies can reproduce themselves. I think that's can, a, that's a quality liberal arts education. You learn how yeah, to think. Yeah, you, you see the production of inequality. You see the production of power. You know, economic capital. 
um, and, and the way that you can entrench systems and you have organizations and we don't have to name businesses, but, you know, look at the stock market, you know, of, of right now and who has been the winners in the stock market and they're all monopolies. You know, these, these guys have all, they all should be uh, guilty of antitrust regulations. And then the same thing in coaching and the same thing in sport that you've got folks that are trying to hold on to power and they're doing not so good things and they need to be regulated. And that shouldn't be controversial. We should be doing that. I know your, your point you made a few minutes ago about physical education essentially going down the crapper. Uh, one of the local school districts here in the uh, Pittsburgh area announced uh, fairly recently that they'll have remote classes. In other words, the teachers will be in the classroom. Students will come in. Uh, actually, they're not coming in for six weeks, but they'll have live over Zoom mm-hmm. uh, classes. And this lady I was talking to, her daughter is a grade school teacher and her son-in-law is a physical education teacher. And I said, oh, well, you know, what are they doing for physical education? She said, nothing. If there's ever a moment or a time to yeah. make movement a lifestyle and to teach kids that you don't have to have other kids, you don't have to have a gym or, or, a, or a baseball field, there's all kinds of things you can do, whether it's in your home or if you're fortunate enough to have a yard that I think schools are missing who are not doing this are missing out on a huge opportunity for a generation of kids. Yeah. And it's, and it, it's somewhat sad because I'm still kind of have that, that liberal arts. You know, I went to John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio. And so I had a two-year liberal arts core. And then you do the two years in your major. And even in your major, you're still always talking about philosophy, ethics, and, and the social aspects. And yeah, I still have a dream that right, physical education and, and human movement can be a place to explore yourself, to create you know, more like an artist. And, and provide practice, not only self-care in the sense of de-stressing, but also practicing who you are and discovering things about yourself. Um, you know, and, and I've, in the past six months, have refound my love for riding my bike, you know, that I loved as a kid. You couldn't get me off the bike as a kid. Um, so I think you could do physical education now. It just takes work, you know, and, and, and the idea that, oh, the, the, the idea now that physical educators have to point to the cognitive benefits of physical education, it makes me sad, you know, that we justify physical education, not because you have a body that you're going to need for your whole life and not because you enjoy moving your body, but, oh, by the way, if you do physical education, it'll also help your math scores or it'll help your science scores. And you go, you know, well, yeah, I speak about how STEM reproduces and entrenches itself as a power system. STEM is great, but it's not the only way to understand your world. You know, and, and who does, you know, I, I would go further, right? Who benefits from all this STEM? Who benefits from science and technology? Engineering, Matt, like who is doing it? Is, is it the drug companies? Is it, you know, big company, big tech companies, you know, like Facebook, Amazon, healthcare companies, big pharma, are they the primary beneficiaries? Because our healthcare in the country still isn't that good. And constantly working and people are less and less in shape or more and more obese, whatever that, you know, that means. Uh, you know, we, if we focus more on social inequalities, critical thinking, maybe we could solve some of these problems that we have rather than reinforcing the same old systems. That's why I'm a radical on that regard. Curious also with something you, you raised about 10 minutes ago. It seems like every time I pick up uh, the online version of the New York Times or Sports Illustrated or a blog post, you're reading about another league or another national governing body or another team where the coach did something um, 
from either at the base level unethical to sleazy to illegal. Um, you know, right now I think there's something going on with with uh, weigh-ins and a system of uh, abuse of, with uh, athletes' weights at a college in New England. A, a women's basketball coach was just fired. Why are we? And I know that if you you mentioned USA Gymnastics, that there are some national governing bodies, there are large lists of coaches that float around that say these coaches should not be coaching for various reasons, yet they're still coaching. Why are we starting to now start to see this come out, do you think? Do you think this is because of social media? Do you think people are saying enough is enough? Or what's the reason? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I think social media has obviously transformed our recent age. And the explosion of all the streaming services and the social media has given more voice to marginalized or oppressed you know, groups or people you just don't hear from as much. And when they're able to organize and develop a hashtag and mobilize a small group, it can kind of uh, snowball into something larger. Uh, and, and the same thing with, like I just referenced Athlete A, and there's tons of movies. I was you, you know, you and I nerd out about over this stuff too, but I, I sent our faculty this morning, I was doing some research and I found uh, the updated link at the University of Denver here for all of the services, the subscriptions that we have to various, you know, documentaries and, and movies and whatnot to share with all of our faculty so we can put it in classes, especially as we go to look to teach via distance this fall. So there's, there's, there's so much of that right now. So I, you know, it creates a, a a push, you know, more. And there's, you know, just like as people start to have various capital or resources, they can promote it. And that's why you've got more recently in the past several years. And again, it's a, it's a fraction, but you've got more movies about Black Lives Matter, race and ethnicity, slavery. Uh, you know, these things were, were old stories in a way, but they've always been there. It's just the, the people with more power and capital could not get the stories out. They couldn't promote it as much, you know, right? Because of entrenched systems of power. And again, that's not a radical, that, that alone is not a radical thing to say. It's just, it's, it's actually an observation. It is what it is. You know, uh, last night I started watching this movie called you know, The Black Godfather about, uh, I forget his first name right now, but his last name was Avant. And he was a, he's a big promoter of music and entertainment uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s tremendously wildly influential and you realize all the people that he touched so quick digression into uh sports or um, music another digression as i get off too off track and you bring me back in the sociology of sport journal just published a special issue on the intersection of hip-hop and uh, sports so they all go hand in hand that's why sports is so cool because it touches on everything in society and we're here in the U.S. We're somewhere, depending on when you started taking it seriously, five months into COVID-19. You know, in the, in the spring, it was easy to say, well, you know, some athletes lost their spring season or part of their winter season if they were in a winter spring sport. But now we're in the fall and there are a significant number of high school students, college students, and even professional athletes who aren't going to have a season or they say maybe we'll have it in the spring and there's been a lot of conversation about the effect on them but there hasn't been a lot of talk about the coaches who if they're taking it as a profession even though there's still room for the profession if they take it seriously so i guess two-part question to to expand on is first of all as somebody who's in the profession of educating future coaches and current coaches what are your concerns with potential problems that coaches may face because of what's going on? 
Yeah, it's it's a lot. You actually said at the beginning too, uh, in passing, right? And, and it wasn't probably an intentional. You had meant, you had said we're halfway through COVID, and and I think we're, you know I'm I'm listening like oh we're halfway through. Okay, that's not too bad. We've only got maybe another five months to go. Yeah, I probably misspoke. <laughs> I, I I should have said we're about five months in. Yeah, uh, that would be fantastic. I can't wait for you know January of 2021 now. Heck yeah, uh, get me past this too. Uh, you know me, Brian. I'm an optimist. Oh man, I, so I, I, you said it. I mean, I just listened. I was listening to uh, I, I, I like uh, Cornell West, right? And, and they were talking about optimism, pessimism, and hope. And and we'll call, we'll, real quick, so he, opti- he was, I'm trying to see if I can get it right while I'm thinking about it on the fly. But optimism and pessimism were like you know the predict like the. Uh, in, I'm trying to think how they said it. In the face of known obstacles you can be positive you know pessimistic or optimistic and then he differentiates he said hope is when you really don't know so i just right as, a, as an intellectual uh, i just paused for a moment and like to think about that one and, uh, and it seemed to be kind of an astute observation so okay uh back on track here um give me the word what are we talking about my coaches, my coaches is like, what are you, what are you as an educator of coaches? And yeah. I'm sure some of this is coming up if your semester yep. hasn't started yet, or it is started. It's something that you, that's a, a great topic of conversation, although probably yep. not necessarily the topic that you so, wanted to have six months ago. Let, let me do myself. So what, what, let me, so we're always teaching. We have year round classes. So we're 10 weeks. We have, we have classes all the time. We're actually, this is week. Uh, we're just finishing week eight of the summer quarter. We start the fall in a month. We're constantly in touch with our students and talking to them about classes, professional development, career development. Let me let me point to two things that I do to bring light to the issue. I've mentioned so far, and I and I do this intentionally because I'm I'm kind of embodying it when I when I do it. This summer I tend to listen to on YouTube old, you know, Don Rickles, I mentioned, you know, and old comedians, uh, or or new comedians for that matter too. And I realized that during this current time, I'm not listening to music like I used to because I would listen, I would get in a car and you listen to the radio or, you know, NPR, the podcast, whatever you're doing, moving to live, you know, and and you're listening to all these things and you can de-stress a little bit. You can chill out. You can enjoy it, you know, the, whatever your genre is. And so I'm, I'm listening now in the house and I'm trying to remember to listen to a little bit more comedians I, I tend not to listen to too much or watch too many comedies, um, but I've been doing that a little bit more than than usual lately. And I've also been listening to more podcasts lately and I've been riding my bike outside lately. And so doing those things has been what I'm trying to do to cope with the current stress. Um, conversations like this are more stimulating and engaging than some of the Zoom Meetings that I've had with, you know, uh, faculty going back to campus and school updates and committees and staff meetings, administrative meetings, planning for the fall. I mean, all of this is not very stimulating. It's very tedious. And so you've got to take breaks um, and, and find ways to cope and deal with that as an individual. And hopefully you can find ways to de-stress. So those are a few things that I do. Other people, right? And we, te- we have this in our program in different modules where we're talking about, we know that especially at the full-time or high-performance level, coaching can be extremely stressful. 
with the pressure to win, please parents, to care about your athletes and the community, you, you really are trying to do the best that you can, you know, for those that are, that are on this band, that bandwagon that are, that are really on board with doing the right thing. It can be exhausting. And now you're faced with COVID and social distancing or physical distancing. You got to wear a mask. You got to try to follow the state laws and rules. You want to keep people healthy, but you also are trying to not only improve their performance, but you're trying to help develop them in a larger way, right? We, we talk about using sports to build character and other lifelong skills. So how do I do these things? Does it, and now you have to stop and ask, is it, is it, is it now really fundamentally? And people have assumed this for years and they're probably off base a little bit. You assume that your sport, you talked about an athlete who loves their sport becoming a coach. And that for me is probably one of the worst reasons why you can become a coach. You become a coach in my mind and, not, 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 and there's just problems with this. You become a coach because not because you just love your sport, but because you love people. But because you see the opportunity to engage with and develop a relationship with people to help educate them, to help them understand themselves, and to help build a relationship that can be sustainable over time, uh, where they come back and graduate and see you, uh, where you can help them be successful in other aspects of their lives. They can help change you. You know, so much more educational kind of view than just a transactional or a performance view, or that the sport has an inherent magical power to it itself. And, I, and I'm trying to be intentionally, I'm, I'm not mentioning any specific sports, because sport, whether it be basketball or football or lacrosse and hockey and softball, et cetera, swimming, the sport itself has very little power. It's, it's not, doesn't live in a vacuum. We can't understand sports in this kind of pure, just sporting way in that by magically playing or throwing the ball that bam, you're like a great person. No, you're learning how to run and put your left foot in front of your right foot or here, you know, when you break it down into a more of a technical thing, it sounds quite silly. And that's what some people do when they want to dismiss sport as trivial. They'll, they'll do those types of things. And they'll say, all you're doing is putting the ball in a hoop. You know, that's nothing special. But obviously, that's not just it. It's not just that. It is a larger social, uh, psychological event. It's a symbolic event, too. So I, I think about sport in these ways, too. Um, and I, anyway, the point then is, too, that coaches nowadays and our students can think about developing themselves. And they should have been doing this to begin with. You need to understand yourself in multiple ways. And this is part of the problem that coaches communicate to their athletes is they want utter commitment and dedication to the sport. And that can create over identification with the sport over identification as being an athlete or a coach. Rather, I am a multifaceted complex individual. I have multiple identities I'm a, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I'm a coach, I'm a father, I'm a community figure, I'm a teacher, I'm a you know, physiologist, I'm a sociologist, I have multiple roles, I'm an actor, I'm a painter, I'm a reader, I'm a writer, I'm a blogger, right? And, and so when you have that protective armor of being more than just a single thing, when your main activity or your main identity, and they're not synonymous, when those things get harmed or stopped as we're having right now 
And I think about sports uh, the same way as like actors right now and, and, and Broadway theater performers. Like they can't perform and it's got to be killing them. So I think this is a great opportunity for coaches and athletes to explore other things. Now, if you're still got a scholarship or you're a professional and you got to keep going or you got to, you know, eventually you're going to probably have a season or you're going to play another sport or you're just a physically moving body. You got to, you got to keep moving. You got to stay active. You got to do things. We've got to find a way to make that happen. Um, you know, individually as well as socially and as, as a community. Uh, but it, what a great opportunity it is right now to try to do more and become something more or explore these other areas of your, your being in the world to use a, a more philosophical term. I'm curious if any of your graduates or maybe current uh, students have come to you and said, you know, now I really get what it means. Some of the things that you're teaching in these classes now for the first time, I'm taking, taking time for myself. Whereas, you know, maybe eight months ago I couldn't because I was coaching seven days a week and I was just inundated with this. And now I'm understanding it's not just the coaching, it's taking care of everything else with me. That's going to make me a better coach in the long run. I'm trying to think of a few examples when you say that. Yeah, there's, there's a few. There's 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 yes and no, and there's both. There's I, I had a prospective student who's starting with us this fall reach out recently, and you know universities right now are sending out probably too much communication to students. You know, overloading them with you know this week in COVID we're doing this, and, and right in, and next week it's well now this week in COVID we're doing this, and and I get it from the from my kids' uh, school district here, and it's just hey it's it's like more noise and more stress. And I, anyway, I commented to this prospective student and I, I said, yeah, these, you know, things right now are really crazy, you know, and I'm, I'm pretty resilient and I've got a lot of resources. I've got a job, I've got stability, you know, and I'm very fortunate in that regard. Uh, and I'm even stressed though. So when I feel it, and I think I'm kind of on the high end of, you know, so-called mental toughness, resiliency and all that, uh, then I know other people must really be struggling uh, much worse. You know, and when you start listening to things and you, and you realize domestic violence and, you know, self-harm, you know, and we was talking to a couple of guys from USA football last week too, that, you know, they're really concerned about those people. So it's the same thing with this young student, with this student, when I was able to reveal myself and, re and kind of share that you are not alone, you know, that you are uh, validated and what you're feeling is accurate and we are here to support you and help you. So communicate with us and reach out to us and we can provide that buffering system. Uh, we can provide what we call maybe like a relational resiliency and relational caring to support you. Because in this case, you know, we're going to help each other make it through this time. And yelling at somebody or adding more stress to them or, you know, basically telling them, well, go figure it out or not even being on the radar about it. You know, at least that way we're trying to figure out support systems and uh, pull the resources that we have to help people. Uh, so I think a lot of coaches are trying to do those things. Uh, now, on the other side of it, there are other coaches, and I can be guilty of this too, that with this so-called extra time, because you're not maybe doing the other day-to-day -day stuff that you had been doing, that means you're just spending more time preparing, planning, you know, creating materials, uh, maybe reading you know, you're at the desk, right? I've done more podcasts to myself in the last three months than I did in the past year because everybody's, you know, well, I got, I got time to do this now. And you're like, wait a minute now. Uh, and, and those things can be unhealthy, you know? So we actually thought about the other day, 
doing a research study and people, you know, you know, the researchers will be doing research now on COVID for years to come. But I wonder about how different groups of the population, athletes compared to non-athletes and actors and others, you know, and students, how are they all perceiving stress and coping right now? Uh, because we were questioning, right? Football, this was, was USA football. You know, football makes you tough, makes you tough, builds character, you know, and, and you're going to be able to take this on and blah, 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 run through a wall. Well, right now is not the time to run through a wall. Um, and, and we really don't know how athletes are coping right now. And so studying that systematically through some research would be an interesting thing to really see how are they doing. Uh, and I would bet you'd find some interesting findings like the collegiate athletes or those seniors that seasons of, that they've lost their seasons or the coaches that are really identifying with their role of a coach and they don't have that opportunity or that was their paycheck. You know, and I really, I feel for a lot of those folks, right? right? Our unemployment is at the highest rate it's ever been in, you know, 50, 75 years, something like that. You know, and just because I, because I'm all about the economics right now, our unemployment rate right now or the weekly jobs report, if anybody's interested, when I, when I, so I'm taking an uh, economics class now, and there's a website, Fred. Fred is the Fed Reserve of St. Louis. You go on the Fred website, and I had to do this for a class project. Our unemployment, weekly unemployment claims are still about three times as high as the average. So it, it was always tracking just under about 400000 per week for years. And now we're at a million plus, even on the slowdown. And that's on the way down, but it's still three times as high as the average has been from historically. And so all of these people, including coaches and, and professional athletes, are uh, changing their livelihoods and perhaps losing their paychecks. And that not including some of the teacher coaches at the high school and collegiate level that don't make that kind of money and don't have the bank accounts and the, and the financial resources. So they're worrying about not only am I missing my, my love for the athletes in the, in the game, but also I got to worry about paying rent and, and, and paying the car note and you know, healthcare. And if I get sick or I got to take care of my, my cousin or somebody in my family, you know, I, I just had a former student actually last week uh, who got COVID, you know, and I found, I saw it on social media and I reached out and, and checked on her and how she's doing. And her dad got it too, you know, and was very sick and they were in the hospital, you know, so we're going back to basic need and basic survival for some people right now. We're not talking about self-actualization or, you know, uh, these more uh, uh, fancier ways of trying to be free and really uh, empowered and live a great life. We're talking about surviving. And that's a reality for some people right now. Great insight from Dr. Brian Garrity. Brian is the director of sport coaching at the University of Denver. He was generous enough to sit down with Moving to Live, describe a little bit about the need for education and coaches. And then also I've had the opportunity to talk to a physical therapist and an endurance coach about the effects of COVID on them. And I wanted to get Brian's insight on things that coaches could look for, things that coaches could do. It's interesting, Brian, that, uh, your suggestions for things that coaches should be doing Way back in April or May, I interviewed a high school uh, cross-country coach, and some of those very things that you were saying, taking time for himself, reaching out to his athletes, not to talk about cross-country, but just to see how they were doing, he was doing that. So either his, something has trickled down from your program, or he had a good mentor somewhere along the line. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm even too, I'm, I'm finally uh, reading some books that I've been wanting to read for years and I've put off. Um, and I think too, like, right. And I think of myself as a coach or as a professor too, right. I get to carry these lessons on and in, in dialogue with other people. So I've just started reading more Anton Chekhov, you know, and, and trying to read some of these great works uh, that I haven't been able to read. And, you know, when I was coaching full time too, I would share poetry or, philosophy, et cetera, with athlete leadership lessons with athletes. So knowing that you're investing in your practicing self-care to handle your own stress um, and develop yourself, I think is fantastic. Um, and I hope that people not only do it now, but then also in the future, but we also do with our students that it's not just you, but it's your, think about it at multiple levels. So yes, it's you right now as an individual, but it's the people around you, it's the team, it's the organization, it's the community, it's the society. And the more we can build up our support systems through resources and removing barriers to physical movement or activity and sport, the better off we're probably going to be long-term. And so we were talking before we got started, we have got to invest in infrastructure, research and development ways to think and have lifelong learning and development uh, because those are the resources that are going to prepare us for shocks. And when you have, it's funny, I bring in economics again and I'm really digging it. I took econ as a freshman in college and I changed my major to phys ed exercise science. I swear. I took econ for a year. I said, I'm not doing this for the next three years. There's no way. And I changed my majors and I loved it. But now I'm in econ now again. Uh, and I, and I find it fascinating uh, right. And, and 18 year olds probably don't care much about econ very much. At least I didn't. And uh, what, what, what causes a recession? You know, right. When you pause, what, what causes a recession? Sudden shocks to the economy, oil shocks, price shocks, pandemics, bubbles, right? Bubbles burst and it creates a shock through the economy and then the economy crashes. So the same thing, right, with coaches, let's reduce those shocks or prepare for those shocks, put some money in the bank. Who fares better when there's a, a recession? People that have money in the bank because they can uh, weather the storm a bit better. And Americans tend to be terrible. This is not, again, an opinion. Americans are terrible at savings. And sometimes that's because we don't have enough wages. But it's also because we just like to spend. We like to have a good old time and get out there and spend things. We buy things. We live in a consumer culture. Well, put some of that money in the bank or develop your infrastructure around you. So that way you, you have a greater support system and you can handle those unexpected shocks. Great insight from Dr. Brian Garrity. He gave us some good information to think about with coaches. And even if you're not in coaching and a little bit of economics thrown into Brian, thanks again for taking time to talk to moving to live. I'm sure at some point in the future, we'll be talking to you again. That's great. Thanks for being here, Ben. If anybody wants to get a hold of me, I guess you can follow me on social media at, at Dr. Garrity, uh, D-R-G-E-A-R-I-T-Y and, and hope to hear from you. And I think this is a great resource that you're providing for everybody too. So thank you, Ben, for your work. And we'll have that contact information on the uh, show notes when we publish the show too. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. 
You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.